0: This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. You're listening to Bookmark. With me, Uma Paganampake Pagan. Joining me today is author Sridevi Ayer, who just published her first collection of short fiction. It's called Jungle Without Water and
1: Other Stories. Hello, my name is Sri Lady Ayur. Uh, you can call me Sri. And I am the author of Jungle Without Water and Other Stories.
0: Thank you very much for sending me a copy of your book. I have finished all 10 stories. Oh, wow. And um, I was going to ask you, though, because the one thing I couldn't quite place was mm-hmm. whether any of the 10 stories had a specific link or a reason why you picked these 10 stories for the collection. I mean, some of them are clearly, at least they felt to me like something that came from a very personal space. They mm-hmm. felt quite intimate. But other than that, I wasn't sure why you picked these 10 stories. Could you tell me why? Where, what was the genesis of this collection?
1: Well, actually, um, it came about from a conversation I was having with um, the publisher of, of CCC Press, Nottingham, and Donald Daily, where we were talking about the idea of polyphony. So the thing that actually binds uh, these stories, which are sort of uh, you know set in different places and have different characters who are from different places and who are going through different things in different places, is really sort of the idea of uh, polyphony, which, if you think about it, is a very Malaysian thing, to have in a sense but you know you you, you speak differently to say your boss at work
0: yes. um
1: to say and you, and you would speak very differently to the guy at your grocery you know like you, you do not speak uh, to the grocery guy the way you speak to your boss so we have um quite naturally this this sense of code switching and code mixing that we do as a part of our daily life and um My publisher and I were sort of interested of what that would look like in a collection if you had a Malaysian who, you know, had traveled to different places, had lived in different places. And, you know, so once again, if you go outside uh, your comfort zone and you communicate with people who are very different from you, you would sort of change again. You would sort of communicate in a different way there because you want to be understood. Um, So that would involve a change in voice once again. And the idea was to see if it'd come up with a collection that was comfortable, um, with that multiplicity, which you know, which, which sort of departed from that singularity that just sort of uh, seems to be a, a prerequisite for uh, a literary voice.
0: Aha. Well okay, that that makes a lot more sense now. And you're oh. absolutely right. And I've always felt that I've always felt that we Malaysians are far better at code-switching than anyone else I've ever come yeah. across anywhere else in the yeah. world. I think yeah. even more so, so than Singaporeans, even though we're the same people.
1: Ah, oh, I see. Right. Yeah. Well, we do it so naturally. I don't think they are very aware of it. I don't think we really think about it too much. Um, it's very unconscious, I feel. Um, and it's also very hard to make it a conscious thing, and especially in writing, because you go, oh, you know, we will speak this way in our law and everything, but you know, when we write, it must suddenly be in the proper standard English. Correct. Um, you know, which is why I wanted, like, I wanted a story in there that was in Manglish, um, very, you know, specifically. Uh, not Singlish, but Manglish, you know. So, yeah.
0: And, and why do you suppose that is? I mean, my theory, my theory is quite basic. Because of that multiracial background, we are so, oh. we so want to be understood by the other person. Yes. And so we yes. kind of force ourselves, so even when I'm overseas, I will slow down, my pace gets slower, because I want that person to understand, because of course, if I was speaking in England at the speed at which I'm speaking to you now, yeah, they're not going to get what I'm trying to say.
1: Yes, well, exactly, and that's what happens to me as well. I mean, uh, right now, while speaking to you, I'm here in Hong Kong, and so you know, I'm just sort of mirroring and reflecting of uh, <laughs> what you're telling me. Yes. But if uh, in, in, in my 15 years in Brisbane, um, you know, I spoke with a very uh, obvious the accent because I had to, because it's the only way I could make myself understood. And if I sort of switched back to, you know, like the, the Malaysian accent, which would sometimes happen, um, you know, subconsciously, um, it was a thing in the communication which I... Sometimes I was okay with it, but sometimes I I didn't want it. So it really depends on your intention and and how you want to go about it. I will say this. It's very interesting. Uh, Whether in my friendships with people from all over the world or even in intimate relationships, um, if I get comfortable enough with a person, somehow the law will come out.
0: (laughs) (laughs) There's no escaping the law.
1: Yes, like once I've said the lie, or oh, your oh, you're family in some way, mate. So, yeah.
0: In these 10 stories, uh, the one thing yeah. that I kind of noticed was yeah. a sense of experimentation in mm, that yeah. uh, even, even with your own voice, in, and I found it shifting between Jungle Without Water, between the kind of yeah. story you were telling with, in the lovely village, even the really, really short one, which was the Longan Cellar. Mm, yeah. um, there seemed to be an experimentation with voice and tone as well. Was that, was that conscious? Were you trying to seek out a specific voice when you were writing these stories, or did you just decide, you know what, I want these things to sound different?
1: Um, I would say it's more the latter. I would say that that's not specifically something that came up for this collection, but more when I began writing them. Uh, because some of the stories, I do have to say, came out as a result of uh, the MFA that I was a part of in Hong Kong at City University of Hong Kong, which I should say very quickly doesn't exist anymore. Uh, but it existed from 2010 till about two years ago. And it was a very interesting MFA with a very sort of intentionally multilingual, multi-canonical, uh, multinational um, workshops and faculty and students. And I think um, what you're seeing there in the stories is sort of a, a natural reflection of of what happens in those workshops where, you know, like for the first time, because I was writing a lot in Brisbane as well, I will have to say, and I was also writing in a very singular voice when I was in Brisbane, so I will say that. But what happened with these workshops is that it sort of liberated me because I felt that, you know, number one, I wasn't the only odd one out. I wasn't the only, you know, brown female in the workshop because everyone else was an odd one out as well. So, you know, you're kind of liberated from having to explain yourself. Um, which then gives you time to just focus on the craft itself. So that's kind of what I did. I just began focusing on the craft of with these stories. And I had these different mentors who were, again, from very different parts of the world. Like um, the IC story, uh, I have to say, um, I worked on it with Dabish Kerr, who's a professor at the University of Aarhus in Denmark. Um, and then there was another story that I worked with um, Robin Hamley, who was the head of uh, creative nonfiction at the University of Iowa, so it was, it was the sort of synergy in in, in um, the creative process where you, where you dealt with so many different people and they had so many different ideas, and it kind of came up in how I dealt with the craft. Um, and then when I started putting it together, I was like, oh, so you know, this, this is what's happening. It's sort of how to be in the world. Um, as a Malaysian, how to be a global Malaysian in a sense. Um, So that's how that came about.
0: That's interesting that you say that. It's something that we're quite comfortable with, actually, being global citizens. We seem Mm -hmm. to, apart from being able to code switch, we're incredible chameleons in that way. You'll find a Malaysian almost anywhere, and you'll find a Malaysian settling in in that place incredibly well, almost anywhere.
1: Yes, absolutely. And you also find that Malaysians are very hard to categorize, unless they actually say that they're Malaysian, usually people don't pick it up. You know, they say, oh, you must be this, or you must be that. And, um, and you know, people love to label you and categorize you um, very quickly, and that's also something that I, well, I naturally resist that, I think. Um, so it takes a lot for me to actually go, oh, actually, um, I'm Malaysian, and people are usually surprised.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the shortest story in your collection, The long answer, it's about two and oh. a bit pages is probably the most cryptic story of the lot (laughs) and because i'm speaking to you i have the benefit of having you explain it to me (laughs) so (laughs) i want you to give it away and okay first i want you to tell people what it's about and also tell me what the hell is it about
1: (laughs) yes so so the last seller is um pretty much about a woman a a a, a housewife you would say (laughs) who sort of you know, on the outside, um, she's sort of the good wife, you know, in, in a sense, she's, she's a good woman. Um, but then what she does is that in the middle of the night, uh, she sort of goes out of the house. Well, initially, she, she comes across this long-arm cello, um, um on the streets when, you know, she's out with the family in the car. And then later on in the evening, she sort of goes out to um, seek him out, in a sense, and, and she sort of vents or complains about, what's actually going on um, in her life. And each time she says something that is, um, how shall I say, something that is credible, something that is very much a part of, um, you know, the the, the woman's uh, trouble, the good woman's trouble that doesn't get spoken about. He gives her a long run, also, you know, as if it's almost like a a reward or something. But there's one bit where she goes, I think she complains about um, her maid, and it's a little much. It's a little bit as if she's complaining about her privilege, in a sense. And she doesn't get along on, and she has to live with what she has, which is kind of what that's about. Uh, but yes, it is the shortest story in that collection. It was sort of my way of, because it's you know, I'm, it's sort of similar to Lovely Village. As well, in the sense that it's sort of trying, me trying to fit in large ideas in small forms, um, which is something quite difficult to do. And what actually ends, happens is that it ends up seeming like a fable, which is what the um, long seller also ends up being like. Um, and it's sort of uh, my take on this Japanese um, short fiction form called um, Palm of the Hand Story. That's right. and, uh, Yes, and Kawabata is sort of, I think, the, the, the great exponent. Um, of that form so it was sort of my take on that form it was also the one that I was a bit but the most unfamiliar with but also kind of um, quite satisfying because it kind of took a lot of the burden off me of trying to you know fill in all the the, the gaps and the white spaces um so yeah that was my take on
0: no, I liked it because I want to hear more about this lady's life mm, yeah, and why yeah. she finds Longan Seed so compelling. But uh, Amir Muhammad published a collection of Palm of Hand stories a while ago uh, called Roja. Oh, Roja, right.
1: all right.
0: And it was a, oh. it's just this beautiful little hardcover and he got a whole bunch of people to contribute um, stories based on the format. And it was, yeah, it was really kind of cool. Oh, wonderful. Well,
1: thank you for telling me about that. I'll look it up for sure
0: let's talk about the MFA. You said it was shut down. I remember when it happened, it was a very big deal among writers and people in the literary world. And it was a pretty tragic thing because it was a great little MFA.
1: Yes, it really was. And it was really, um, there was nothing anyone could really do about that because there was a sort of outside political forces at play. But yeah, I mean, this MFA uh, was sort of the brainchild of uh, Si, who's the director of the program. And she was, I don't know if she still is, but she was the um, head of the, uh, the, the chair at the Vermont College of Arts. But I don't know if she still is. And she put together this program with that idea of, you know, let, let's make this as diverse as possible. And she was the only one who could do it. So we had uh, Madeleine Tien, who was a, a faculty member? Of course, we uh, we had um, uh, Robin Hemley, who who visits the Philippines a lot, and who is now with Yale you and U.S. and Singapore. And at the time, he was in Iowa. We had and we had you know just just writers from all over the world. We had James Scudamore from the U.K. We had Louis Francia, a Filipino American writer who lives in New York. We had Sharmistha Mohanti from um, India, who writes incredible experimental stuff. We had Suzanne Powler, Ravi Shankar, the poet, uh, Sybil Baker, Tina Chang, who's a poet from Brooklyn. Just an incredible um, faculty, and we also had students who were from all over the world as well. So you know, students from Australia, the Philippines, Singapore, Malaysia, but the US and the UK, Hong Kong itself, um, from China, from India, just um, every, from Sweden, from from Sardinia. <laughs> Everywhere. So you can imagine what the writing workshop looked like, um, you know, when we came in for our residences. It, it, was, it was quite insane. And the other thing that um she did in the MFA that was fantastic was she had the poetry Series. So, you know, during the summer residencies, we would have a visiting writer who was a Pulitzer Prize winner. So we our very first one was Juno Diaz. And I think we've had Kom Toibin and... um Raymond Chow, I think. And oh, fantastic. And, and Richard Blanco, who was the uh, inaugural poet for um, Obama's inauguration. Um, so we really had these incredible people. And the benefit that we had as um, MFA students was that, like, for example, with Juno, the very first visiting writer, he gave uh, a public talk to which you know everyone in Hong Kong in the literary scene in Hong Kong was invited to. But he also gave us a private lecture, which was just life-changing because well <laughs> number number one he's, he's got this great evangelical persona going on right yeah uh but he you know and, and he swears like a savior for one thing um but he's also got this, this he had this really um little gems about writing that i think i use to this day in my writing habits you know i mean he spoke about um the worst way to get a writer to write, is it's is like um, forcing them to do a thing that you have to write. That's like saying things, saying to a child who wants to play, you know, by standing over the child with your arms raised, going, play! You know, it's not going to happen.
0: Oh, because that's uh, the standard piece of advice anyone will give you, right? You sit exactly. down and you just write a thousand words a day.
1: Exactly. And it's the worst thing you can tell someone. Absolutely the worst thing. Um, so so when, when he said that, that kind of sort of hit us to go, oh, yes. Um, and there was also another thing that he said, he said, once a month, write a letter to your critical self, because we all have our critical selves. You know, the, the, the little voice that has been, you can't do this. You're not good enough. Who do you think you are doing this? And so once a month, as a practice, write a letter to your critical self telling it to shut up and why. <laughs> um, and that's a, a practice that I took on. as well. So, you know, I mean, we had access to these incredible, amazing um insights that a lot of us have sort of taken on and, and practiced then it's really been helpful so it, it really is a shame that that um program got shut down but you know i do have to say there are talks on about a, a second program opening up probably in a different part of the world i don't think it's going to be in asia this was uh, they, they had there was very much an asian focus to this mfa um but i don't know if the 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 actual DNA of this upcoming MFA and when that's going to happen, but fingers crossed.
0: Yeah, and of course, and of course, Juno Diaz is brilliant in himself. I can't tell you the number of times oh. I've read and reread Oscar Wilde.
1: Oh. oh my god! And
0: being he a huge dead. comic book geek myself, the man just speaks yes. to me. Yes,
1: Oh god, and you know, and this is the other thing that I really like about him as well. He's very comfortable with code switching and code mixing as well. He speaks and writes. See, it's very interesting. He writes the way he speaks as well, which is why people have this issue. They go, oh, you're Junior, aren't you? <laughs> you know, they hear him go, well, it's you, isn't it? Uh, because he does it. He has this mixed register. He will go nerdy on your ass, and he will also go gangster on your ass, <laughs> sometimes in the same sentence. You know, and he's very comfortable with it. You know, It's a very inspiring thing to, to look at.
0: Now that you've done your first collection of short fiction,
1: yeah.
0: is there a... What's next? Is it more short fiction or is it a novel? I know I know, it's a stupid question to ask because short fiction is not like a short film. It's not a stepping stone towards a novel. But at the same time, I'm just curious as to what your plans are.
1: Um, well, yes, there is a novel in the works. Um, it's nearly done. Um, it's been mentored by Madeline actually. Oh fantastic. I'd really rather not say more than that right now. But that is definitely a novel in in the works. And uh yeah. (laughs) I'll leave it at that. Okay,
0: very good, very good. (laughs) Be all secretive, be all secretive. So we'll get you back (laughs) on again when that's out. Fine. Um but tell me about getting these things published though, because what is the market so it's interesting. In Malaysia The market for short fiction is a good one, but that's because we like reading. We think we can get it over with quickly, so Malaysians enjoy the collections of short stories as opposed to the novels, especially in English.
1: Mm. Yes, I've heard that too, um, and I find it very encouraging. Well, for this uh, particular uh, volume, at the moment it's already out on Amazon, so you can get it on Amazon, and you can definitely get it on Kindle if you like. I know... Uh, some people who've already read it on Kindle and made some comments. Um, and, but if you're the kind who really rather prefer to go to the bookshop and pick it up, I have good news for you as well. Um, the book has been picked up and it will have its own Southeast Asian edition, um, which means that pretty soon it should be out at Kinokuniya at MPH, and at Popular, and, and and I mean that both in Malaysia and in Singapore, and I think quite a few bookshops in Indonesia as well. Now I'm not so sure about the exact date that this will happen, but there is definitely a Southeast Asian edition in the works. So if you want a hard copy, then you know, just I'll let you know.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Well, that's well, that's tremendous news, and, and and hey, thank you so much for sending me a copy. I really enjoyed oh. all ten stories. It was a real pleasure to read. Thank you so much.
1: Uh, thank you so much, Uma. Thank you for
0: having me. I've been speaking today to author Sri Devi Ayer. You can find her first collection of short fiction, Jungle Without Water, and other stories on Amazon.com, of which you can find a link on our podcast page. You've been listening to Bookmark on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast.